Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Who is Dante anyway? I speak a lot about Dante Alighieri. My entire brand is based on the Divine Comedy, with one piece to each one of his poems. But it's always nice to take a step back and think about who Dante was and what he means today in our world of literature and art. Dante was writing in the 1300s. He was a poet, a politician, philosopher. He was also a man lost in a dark wood, in exile from Florence, which is undergoing intense civil war at the time. He spends the rest of his days in exile, longing for Florence, his hometown that he absolutely loved. And at the same time, he's pining for a woman who he first met when he was nine years old, Beatrice. Many people think that Dante didn't really ever know Beatrice, but had built her up to be this magnificent, almost immortal woman in his mind for whom he wrote the Divine Comedy. So thinking about it as a whole, I think that the Divina Commedia is a story about looking for love and trying to find your way out of dark places, but also using art as a means of catharsis. And that's why I was so attracted to the work and why I wanted to delve deeper and start making one piece for each one of Dante's poems. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that this week's guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is the sensational artist Deborah Roberts. Born in Austin, Texas, where she continues to live and work today, Deborah is known for combining collage with mixed media in her figurative works that depict the complexity of black subjecthood and explore themes of race, identity and gender politics. By using collage, Deborah reflects the beauty, strength and power, but also challenges encountered by young black children as they strive to build their identity, particularly as they respond to preconceived social constructs perpetuated by the black community, the white gaze and the visual culture at large. 
combining a range of different facial features from James Baldwin to Rihanna, as well as skin tones, hairstyles, and a myriad of vibrant patterns and striped outfits. Roberts explains that with collage, I can create a more expansive and inclusive view of the black cultural experience. The recipient of the Anonymous Was a Woman Award in 2018, a prize granted each year to 10 female artists over the age of 40, as well as the Pollock Krasner Grant. Roberts' work, as well as being adored by the likes of Barack Obama to Beyonce, is held in the collections of the Whitney Museum, to SFMOMA, the ICA Boston, Studio Museum, Brooklyn Museum, and many, many more. Roberts is one of the leading American artists of today. However, despite a long career, it has only been in the past few years that she has gained the recognition she so rightly deserves and this September we'll see a major solo exhibition of new work at the contemporary Austin Texas always commenting and raising important issues in her work and challenging idealizations Roberts has said my art practice takes on social commentary critiquing perceptions of ideal beauty stereotypes and myths are challenged in my work I create a dialogue between the ideas of inclusion dignity consumption and subjectivity by addressing beauty in the form of the ideal woman the Venus by challenging Venus my work challenges the notion of universal beauty making room for women of colour who are not included in this definition. Deborah Roberts, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you, man. I love that introduction. I should be... <laughs> maybe I should record it. When I feel bad, I can just pop it on. And when I feel bad... <laughs> I can pop it on, you know? It, it can work two ways. I was like, I like this. I mean, like, where's my recording on my phone here? Yeah, we about to do this again. I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you a sample so you can always listen to I it. I know, right? <laughs> it's cool. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Right. So thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honor to speak with you. Virtually, you're in Austin at the moment. I've been so taken with your beautiful work ever since your exhibition at Stephen Friedman Gallery in London last summer. Who are your UK representatives? This exhibition, if they come, a title drawn from an open letter penned by James Baldwin to Angela Davis during her incarceration in 1970, exhibited collage of yours that really highlighted the cross-generational struggle against racism, but also was just this vibrant, dynamic, powerful, hopeful show of these images of children that had so much life and energy to them. And I think, you know, they look like they were about to take over the world, which they will be. So just for those who might be new to your work, I'd love to just describe your work for us. All right. Well, you're right. It's a multiplicity of faces that are joined together, asking the viewer to find this one face, find my humanity and these multiple faces. Don't think of people of color as this monolithic idea but as individuals, as other people are seeing. So I just add a whole bunch of different types of textures and patterns and big hands, small hand, big eyes, small eyes. I try not to make them too grotesque because I don't like seeing grotesque images. And I definitely don't like looking at grotesque images of black women. So I stay on this idea of innocence. That is a beauty and a respect and adornment in these collages that I'm trying to adhere to. So I guess it's the best description. It's multiplicity of faces and textures. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mentioned earlier about how your work has these, you know, they do have these very serious and challenging political undertones, but they also have beauty, like we've said. I mean, how do you want people to feel when they're confronted with your work? Well, one of the things I want them to do is I always tell them that it, they're kind of cute. And it's like <laughs> taking medicine. You know, sometimes we have to take political yeah. medicine and it doesn't always yeah. taste good. I think the great thing about my work is that I am the honey 
in front of the medicine. So the first taste of it, you, you might say, oh, this is beautiful. And yeah. until you start unpacking some of these meanings, what I'm trying to say in the work, how it, it affects you when you walk on what you bring to this work and how that work challenges you. That's the reason why my work has no background because you're seeing it in a white space. And only thing you can do is concentrate on that one image. So I want people to understand it. I'm trying to say, look at my humanity, mainly. Absolutely. And and I mentioned in your introduction, you said, you know, with collage, I can create a more expansive and inclusive view of the Black cultural experience. I mean, can you expand on this and why collage in particular is so important for your work? Well, you know, I used to paint these beautiful little pictures of little girls. And that's how I saw people. I saw people in my neighborhood. I saw a lot of images around me. And and those were the images that, that wasn't being projected out into the world. It was these big, huge, angry yeah. people and very physically violent at times. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't know anyone like that. So I started doing some research and I realized that we're all being swiped under this broad brush of blackness. And then I said, well, how can I do something different with my work that shows the multifaceted faces of blackness? Is how we're happy, how we are, our skin tone is different, our hair tone is different. And collage was a vehicle to help me do that. I mean, I was able to couch the notion of blackness and cutting up faces and destroying them, you know, stitching them back together. And so it was important. I think it really changed my work. It really did. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are quite painterly in a way. And I just love the fact that you're bringing all these multiplicities together. I mean, were you looking at any artists who might have even used that in the past? The crazy thing about collage is that I know people use it in such different ways, but it's never really been as as much in your face as paintings. Right, right. And I'm bringing it back by adding a mixed media to my collage. But, you know, at the beginning, it was really Wengechi Mutu. Man, I yeah. was, I was when Gaethje Jr. I love her work. I know, I was when Gaethje <laughs> Jr. You had to take Carrie Mae Williams and slap me in the face. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, Deborah Roberts. You know, where's Deborah Roberts in when Gaethje Mutu? And so, <laughs> so I had to change it. I had to really, really change it. And one way by changing it was to create my face, my face as a child and really destroy it and bring it back to life. And that helped me be able to break out of that Wengechi Mutu spell and a way of collaging. And then I love Hana Hope. I think her work is amazing. I think that early on, she used collage as a political weapon, as a tool to talk about women's issues, to talk about people, uh, Picasso, people going over to Africa and stealing images and claiming them as their own in a way that no one else was doing. I mean, she was in a group of men in Dadaism. She, you know, she was the woman. So the way she attached the body and Africanism was very important in my work. Yeah, no, I think Hannah Hawk's amazing because I think she was also someone, I think now in this day and age, we're so kind of consumed by advertising images or something, but she was one of the first people who actually said, hang on a second, how are women being kind of perceived in right. mass media culture? And right. actually really played on that. And we had people like Barbara Kruger come in decades right. later. And then, you know, people like you who are still talking about this and continuing this legacy and subject. Right, right. And I I, I just, I'm so happy. You know, I, I'm even happy with Barbara Kruger because she went to Syracuse. I was like, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> 
See, I was already on the track and didn't even know I was on the track. I was just walking. You know, I may have met Hannah Hulk one day in my life, in my past life, you know. Maybe bump to her on the street and say, excuse me, Lala. Excuse me. I love that work. Don't you love my British accent? I love that word. And uh, I've heard, I've heard that you love the German. Queen or something. <laughs> Even though she was, oh my God. Don't get me started talking about the Queen. I love her. I want to meet her. I would definitely curtsy. I would get on my knees and tell her, I love you. What do you have in that purse? I want to know. I know she has a little myth in it. You know, she might have a pistol. You never know. I love her. She is so gangster to me. Oh my God. Don't get me talking about the Queen. I love her. I love her to death. <laughs> <laughs> we should be friends, me and her. Yeah. Well, hopefully she's a fan of the podcast. That's yeah. She's recording. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she should be the... down with her female artists. Uh, man, I would come. I'm Corona clean. Come on, baby. I'll take every test necessary. You know? So, yeah, I love her. She's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. So let's go back to your beginnings. You are still working very much in Austin today. You were born in the 60s. I mean, tell me about your upbringing. Were you surrounded by art much at all? No, 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 no. My, I have eight brothers and sisters. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And no, art wasn't anything in our family. It was just kids and, you know, fighting on the TV and things like that. In the third grade is when I started thinking about art and it became really important in my life. And I started using it as a way to get things from other people. I got a lot of attention because I was an artist. So early on, it was just me trying to figure out, you know, what this was about, why I loved it so much, why it was important. And then, like I said, it became my best friend as a kid. It was a way of telling my story in a way that I couldn't verbally express. Yeah. I've read this beautiful thing where you said you were swapping pencils with people in class. Yeah, I was. I became important. I could draw race cars. I could draw baby dolls. I mean, I could draw everything. I would trade everything. I was making money. It wasn't really real money, but at that time I had so much notebook paper and I have a fascination with pencils. I don't know where that came from. I love them. I love how art's always been your currency. It's amazing. Yeah, it has been. I think for me, not knowing what an artist really was and just exploring it helped me stay an artist. I think if I knew all the pitfalls and the the <laughs> hunger and the disappointment and the rejection and all that, I mean, just like anything in life, I don't know. I think this was meant for me, but I would have had a moment here to say, wait a minute, let me see if maybe I should be a singer. It all turned out very well. But you know, how was art kind of seen in your neighborhood, in your family when you were younger? God, nobody's seen it. I mean, my parents, you know, they were just regular people. They didn't, they didn't understand art. I mean, it was a hobby. It wasn't anything that was nurtured and honored in the household. And so it was a Dabs over there drawing, you know, what's she doing? She drawing in a yep. book. She drawing on the back of this. You know, I got plenty of spankings for drawing on stuff I wasn't supposed to. And <laughs> I needed paper. I didn't care. If I could so imagine up the walls or something. Yeah, I couldn't. I didn't care if it was a bill. I mean, this is the mortgage payment. I don't care. Let me write on the back of my mom's check. So it wasn't anything that was, like I said, I had really great teachers. And I think yeah. that kind of fueled my art. And that was, in the, in the sense, my parental guidance, you know, when it came to my art. 
And so tell me about your early work then. My early work was more like Black Americana. You know, I always tell people it was, I was the Black Norman Rockwell. And Norman Rockwell painted these amazing, beautiful pieces of Americana, of rural America or America in the neighborhoods and things that kids would get into. And I was very impressed by that. I would say that's kind of middle yeah. adult. I think my very early ideas were the Renaissance pieces that I saw in my and our, our family Bible. Yeah, we had a lot of pictures of Christ coming off the uh, cross and just beautiful Sixteen Chapel. I mean, just amazing strokes of human and body and shapes and hands. I used to draw from the Bible a lot. I guess my mom oh, died. Wow. Yeah, I wasn't reading it, but I was drawing from it. She, I, <laughs> nobody, I can tell you, no parent bothers you if you have the Bible, you know. <laughs> they like, leave her alone, she's going to be a preacher. And, nope, sorry, I'm far from a preacher, you know. So, <laughs> so I did a lot of work like that at the beginning. Then it went on to, like, magazines of beauty models and stuff like that and then eventually went into the Norman Rockwell work that's coming yeah. back around that people are now trying to say how much is this work <laughs> really oh my gosh is I it? mean do you look back at your old work at all ever I do I look back at it and it was the work that I was doing at that time I remember early going to meet a curator at the studio museum of Harlem and I brought these Norman Rockwell type pieces and and she said it was sentimental. And I remember leaving because it was a way she said sentimental. And I was thinking, when did sentimental became a negative yeah, word? Yeah. And I mean, I was walking in Harlem, walking back hard. You know, I was like, God damn it. And I went back home and, you know, I really didn't change my style at that time. But I do know the style was changing. But I was unaware of it. And I look back on some of those works and I just love them. I mean, you know, form and shape that I employ today was in the work. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But interestingly, you know, you went back to Syracuse University in 2014 to do your MFA. I mean, how did this change your work? Well, I went to school with millennials. That's what did it. I had never been bullied as far as like, you're not on social media. I was like, okay. You mean? I bet you have more followers than all of them now. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Syracuse University. Well, it, I went as a graduate fellow and it gave me a lot of time to do research, to start taking classes in African-American studies. I realized, I guess in 2010, how literature fed my work. I didn't know that okay. until I started reading Cornell West. Oh, yes. Then I went on to Bell Hooks and then, of course, James yeah. Baldwin and Toni Morrison. And all these books, I never knew that was the key. You know, like, I feel like Indiana Jones, you know, you go in and you're looking yeah. for that one little thing to turn the, the lock. And that was a chest of so much. And far as the eye can see, and it was literature and it was the missing component of my work and how that language influenced me and the body of the work in the shape of African-American and the shape of how others saw us, the printed word, it was key. Yeah. So Syracuse helped me discover that more because I had time 
as a research fellow to really explore those opportunities. I started taking a lot more classes. I would get into my studio and I would just work, work, work. And then till yeah. I finally had that breakthrough of those collages, you know? Yeah. I mean, how was it being at school and, you know, being categorized as emerging as well? I think it's, ah, it, yeah. I think there's so much kind of ageism in art. Yeah, it was ageism. I think it still kind of exists with me, but I was okay with it because even though I've been working really hard, this work was new. It was untold yeah. character for me. It was trying to figure it out. No one since Romir Bearden, even with Wingate Mutu, you know, her forms were always serpentine looking. I mean, even though Micheline Thomas does some type of collage in her work also, and she does human form, but it's totally different than what I'm doing. It just allowed this different type of work to come through. And then I had noticed that none of my contemporaries at that time were doing children. How did this begin? How did we become these black women that we are today that we're talking about? We're trying to push out into the world. And it starts at a little girl. You start early. Yeah, totally. I mean, when did you sort of find your voice really in collage? I mean, when did that happen? I guess in 2012, it started coming through, you know, the faces once I got the faces down, then the body initially started to come through in 2014, 2015. You know, I was working at a shoe store. Of course, that's when I started really expanding the body so that you could see more of who this person was, not just the face, but the whole overall yeah. shape. Soon after I graduated, it just all started to come. The stress of, as you say, university and those weirdos, those professors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anybody in graduate school know that that is like, it's not war, but it's sometimes, it's, it's, it's tooth and nail. I mean, people are scrapping for this one little piece of cheese and everybody wants to be the best one. And instead of, you know, concentrating on our practice, I think the professors kind of encourage that type of discord in, in the programs. But I went there, I already knew what I wanted to do. It's just how was I going to refine it? And yeah, I, I didn't. T- That's nope. such a good word, refining, actually. Yeah. It's just that, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm really fortunate about that part. <laughs> yeah. No, of course. I mean, you know, your work has just captured people from all over the world. I think you've developed this such iconic imagery as well, I think, that is so powerful. But I want to talk about the kind of age that you really focus on, because it's interesting. Recently in London, we had an exhibition with Steve McQueen, who did a project on year three, uh-huh. and he basically filled the whole of the entrance of the Duveen Galleries in Tate Britain, which is absolutely ginormous, with uh-huh. all these school children and uh, of year three. And it was such an interesting age. And I thought about it with your work. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like when I was there, I was just thinking, oh my gosh, Deborah Roberts, Deborah Roberts, because you're thinking about this age that is so interesting you because you work between girls with like eight and ten years old I mean tell me why you like to do that well just as a kid growing up I knew that's when I started really deciding how I wanted to look I didn't want two pigtails I wanted three and I, I wanted to pick out my own clothes at that point my mom every Sunday night she would pick out our clothes for Monday Wednesday and Friday but I remember turning about nine years old and I remember saying, I don't want to wear that. She said, well, you pick it out. And then, of course, <laughs> of course, you know, it was something really crazy, you know, sick. 
you know, probably very fashionable in 2020. But back then, it was like somebody needs to strap me into a crazy mental hospital. But, you know, it was it's the first act of independence. You know, yeah. you deciding who you are. You become aware of yourself. Yeah. Exactly. And that, you know, maybe checks don't look good on me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I picked that age. That's when girls are most vulnerable. Yeah. Our bodies are starting to change. We're starting to have to wear a little training bra on. We're starting to understand what's going to happen to us in the next level of girlhood. And we somehow start to garner the attention of men in a way yeah. that is not as nice as it was before. The hugs become a little bit longer. The people put their hands on you a little bit more. And I thought that was important to start examining that. No one else was doing it. And then I thought about it in the context of being a black woman in America, how do we gain all this strength that we need very early on to fight institutional racism or fight yeah. sexism? And when do those gloves come on? And yeah. do they come on virtually by watching how our aunts and my mothers, our neighbors, how they interact with others. I mean, that when the virtual gloves come on. So all of those things I wanted to explore in the work. And so like now the girl is growing up a little bit. She's between 10 and 12. So there are more things that are happening to her that you're going to start seeing in my work. So how does your body changing that way? You're now becoming more of a woman, yeah. but you're still a kid. Yeah. How is that innocent being seen throughout you know, the world and in your neighborhood and in your school? I always tell people, doing black women is a never-ending road. I mean, it's just whether or not you want to take a different path to it. And that's what I try to do. I'm trying to figure out different things to talk about. Yeah, no, I think they're just beautiful. But, I mean, how do you want a sort of, I don't know, 8 to 10-year-old black little girl to see your work? I want them to see themselves in it. I want to see them. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see some power, you know, early on. Yeah. I guess I, I kept telling myself, stop putting gloves in the work. I was just doing those big red gloves. I want to knock somebody out. I want them, <laughs> yes, I want I them to feel like, you know, that they, they have strength, that they, especially yeah. if they see it in the museum or a gallery, yeah. that they see themselves in that space and that cube. They are now have been taken from this negative ideal and brought into this clean space where people adore work and pay to see it. I want them to gain a lot of uh, power from that and a lot of security in that. Yeah. yeah. I think it's so important when artists just generally represent the younger generations because it really shows hope and this like idea of future. Like I said in the introduction, I, I just think girls looking at that will just see so much and see that they belong. It's a bit like Steve McQueen. It's like, yes, of course that eight-year-old belongs in the Tate Britain. That's right. Everyone exactly. does. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. You belong there. Yeah. Do you ever use images of yourself in your work from your, when you were younger? Yeah. I mean, the whole beginning of my practice is me. It's, it's the picture's Little Debbie. It's called Little Debbie. Yeah. That whole series is me as a kid. And I hate being called Debbie. Don't call me Debbie. Let's, <laughs> let's, you know, Queen of England, you can call me Debbie if you want to. But, <laughs> but I remember turning, I'm at 11. And, they, and my sisters, they would call me Debbie. And I remember telling my father, this is the best thing he's ever done for me. I was crying and I said, I don't want to be called Debbie anymore. And, you know, normally he would laugh at me. <laughs> Anything I don't like, he would laugh. But, <laughs> but anyway, I told him I didn't like it. And then he came in that room and said, 
No one better ever call her Debbie again. Her name is Deb. Her name is Deb. And you know what? From that day on, you never heard Debbie again. So for me doing that series, Little Debbie, and from that age, I wasn't Debbie anymore. So it was really great to like chop it up. And then I guess it's the blueprint to the work you see today because I was able to know, okay, if I blow her up and cut this in, push this down and, you know, just destroy that face, I can create another face. So Yeah. The power of collage essentially means that you can bring all these different features in, but not just features of yourself, but, you know, you have people like James Baldwin as well, right. who is in your works, you know, Robert's Baldwin promise and everything. I mean, why bring his, I mean, I'm just, I think it's just so beautiful. I know. Jeff, constructed oh my it together. God. Jeff? His eyes are so iconic as I know, well. It's I know, freaky. I know. It's just, I'm like, I know that's him. <laughs> I know. And and to see through his eyes. I mean, yeah. the things that he was writing about in the 60s and the, and the 70s, we're reliving them. It never went away. And some of the, the things he talked about being the most despised person in his father's house. And he's talking about America at that point and black yeah. bodies. And we are the sons and daughters of America. And to be despised in that and the way he talked about that, it is so, so real and we need it and it fuels. And so when I'm talking about these issues and to put Baldwin's eye right there, I wish I can get some good Baldwin hands. I haven't been able to find any <laughs> yeah. because it's all been kind of facial stuff. But then I've started using other cultural figures who broke barriers like Sidney Poitier, and he's a dark skinned person who achieved so much success. And just different other cultural, I mean, like I use Barack Obama's hands, I use Michelle Obama's hand, arms, yeah. just saying that we come from a history of really strong intellectuals and people who made a difference. And why can't these be cherished and honored just like everybody else? And I yeah. tell people, it's like, it's four parts of my work. It's art history, American history, pop culture, and black culture. And all those things merge into creating these collages. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, one of my favorite words by yours is Robert's Baldwin's promise, and just the, the way that that eye is almost looking at each other. Yeah. And I don't know who those hands are as well, but they're far too big for the little girls. But that ha the hands, like it to me, it signifies that she is. I don't know. She's the future. And I know, I know. Well, it's so weird, you know. Swiss Biss, I love him, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen to him. So one day I was looking at he had posted his oldest son, and the kid had his hands out like this. And when I see beautiful hands, oh my God, I just screenshot, boom. And Douglas, <laughs> Douglas Swiss's son's hand. I love, he has the most beautiful <laughs> hands. And Baldwin Promise is one of my favorite works. So yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's so beautiful. But your series of Breakthrough Women, I mean, which you borrow features, what are you trying to think to instill with these girls who are, are adopting, you know, features of Rihanna or whoever? Yeah, because Rihanna's powerful. I mean, I, have, yeah. I had Misty Copeland, I had Janet Jackson, but Rihanna's face I used a lot. And, you know, I love pop culture. Like, she got like, bitch, give me my money. You know, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I love how she comes in, boom, 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 boom. And, you know, I was thinking, this is so cool. I mean, it's like, yeah, I want my money. I mean, if you look at it in an intellectual way, for women, we never negotiate. People tell us the price, we accept it. We don't know to say, no, yep. that's not the price. We are the least negotiating yep. people in the, on the planet. And to go in and negotiate, you know, it was even hard for me to write invoices for big, huge amounts. And it takes a lot of guts. It's like, look, I'm going to write this invoice and you're going to pay it. And yeah. for me to say, 
no, that's not, that's not, the, I can't do it for that. That takes a lot of guts. And I love when Rihanna did that. She had that hit out. Bitch, where's my money? And she busted the door. You know, I want my money. And I thought it was important. So I put her in that New York magazine. I used her a lot. And then I used Muhammad Ali's fist because people understand and celebrate him now for his stance on the Vietnam War. But back then he was hated. He was hated for not being an American in the way that they needed him to be and not being the person who did his race proud. And so having all those little things in the work were so important. So, yeah, I use Rihanna a lot in that work. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, in in recent years as well, you've begun to incorporate boys into your work as well. I mean, how's that process been? Well, it's been a slow going, although I think they're now turning the corner. I remember when I first did them, kids would say, they're so cute, they're adorable. Yeah, when do they come criminals? I say, okay. So I understand what it's like to be a woman. I don't know what it's like to be a male. And yeah. you know, we have a lot of shared history, but there is also a history of being a black man that I can never understand. I guess I'm within the circle, but I'm on the outside of the circle. And so during the guys have been a struggle, especially at the beginning, but I think that... I'm getting it. It's only been a a little over a year. It's going to take some time. I'm going to miss some of the things that I should be saying. I want to talk about toxic masculinity. I mean, this old idea about telling boys they can't cry. What makes a man a man? What generates a man? A man only can generate another man. And this idea of black women protecting our sons and raising our daughters. Why is it that women rule the household in black communities. This idea of the absentee black father when he is present and this notion and this stereotype of black men not being present in their children's life. All these things that I have to unpack in the work and the criminalization of black boys early on, like you said, in the third grade. So it's a lot for me to do and I'm still struggling with getting it done right, you know, because it's important. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost, you know, you're putting yourself in that perspective and those person's shoes. I mean, one of the most emotional of your works that I've ever seen is, I mean, it's, it's interesting, actually, with the girls, there is so much power and future. And then with the guys, there's something a bit more vulnerable. Right. I, don't know, I mean, that's just my perspective. But one right. of your works, Facing the Rising Sun and your Ness and Dorma series is just, know. you know, staggeringly emotional. I mean, it honors the life of George Stinney. Julia, I mean, tell us about how this work came about. Oh, God. I was looking, because I was doing Baldwin way too much. And I was looking for that. <laughs> I was looking for younger images of Dr. King. And uh, just Googling, looking, looking. And then all of a sudden, pop, this little boy came up, George Stinney Jr. And I was like, okay, what is this about? Yeah. He had a very sad looking face. And I, I did a little research and I said, okay, I'm not, you know, that's not, I don't do people. I do yeah. people, but I don't do people as people as themselves. And yeah. I remember that whole week, it just bothered me. The whole story, yeah. the whole idea of a 14 year old boy being accused of murdering two little girls and carrying their bodies like 100, 150 yards away with no damage to his feet, to his body, and then being arrested and, and then tried in three days, convicted in 10 minutes, and executed all under 80 days. And he was so little 
And he was the youngest boy ever to be yeah. killed on death row, right? Yes. Yeah. And it changed everything because now children, you got to be 21 yeah. to be murdered in the United States on, on death row. And so it just bothered me. I think he wrestled with me. And that never happened. I always tell people when people say, well, I was moved by the work. I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, right. And until it happened to me. And you do. And he just, he wrestled with me until I did three works. And I kept saying it still was in me to do more and facing the rising sun. And when he has these big clothes that were meant for a grown man and his little body in it. And his head just sinks into it. Yeah. And it's this idea of old Negro spiritual, the black anthem, where we're asked if every day we have to get out and face the rising sun for a new day to begin. So that just, it just... Even today, I'm so happy that this work did what I wanted to do. I wanted more people to know about George Stanley Jr. You know about it. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful yeah. for you to even mention it. For, for you to know about him, for him to be in major institutions, for his story to be to really, really realize he was a person. He wanted to be an artist. He was a twin. He was exonerated 70 years later. They cannot put a marker on his grave because they feel that the races and the families of the girls were destroyed and dig him up and do something oh to him. Oh my God. So they know where he is, but no one else will know. And that's unfortunate, you know, that he doesn't get a proper headstone. And that's just society we live in in 2020. So who knows who killed these girls? They were definitely killed, but this little boy didn't do it. He was too little to do it. He couldn't possibly have done it. So those type of stories that intrigue me. I have another story right now. That, I mean, not like this one, but this idea of being this young guy who was jogging in America. He was killed by these, these father and son who were chasing him down and they shot him to death recently. And yeah, that yeah. story has been bothering me. So this idea of, I love Goya, Francisco Goya, but his work is so dark to yep. me. It's way darker than I, 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 I oh yeah. God, I look at it, but he did, <laughs> he did this speech called Saturn devouring his son. And it's like this image of this thing being sucked up by Saturn. And I looked at it and I read of it, Satan devouring his son and then Satan devouring his daughter at night. He's been, you know, nicking me in the night. Yeah. You know, Nick and me, I ain't Goya because Goya's too dark for me. I can't. He's scary. Those eyes. And I'm like, oh, my God, that painting yeah. is so horrific. So <laughs> yesterday, I finally did the drawing that's going to be in the canvas. And it's going to be an image of a body that is curled going this way, act like it's being sucked up by something. And it's going to be called Satan, the virus. And in this pocket, he's going to have a lot of little black faces, little boys. And then his feet are going to be like you're down that tippy toes. And it's yep. going to be a very powerful idea. And the idea of Satan is America. This idea that people are despised virtually on their skin tone and not even, I mean, we never presumed as being innocent. It was a modern day lynching. And it's like this idea of that is just so upsetting to people and to me i mean so i I need to get these works out of my body so i can listen to i don't know so you can sleep i can sleep (laughs) at night i can do about denzel washington you know those things i don't need to be (laughs) be worried about satan you know yeah but i think it's so important you know even 
for example, like it wasn't until I knew about this video that also went viral of this little black girl who's 15 who a cop violently threw and pinned down right. whilst breaking up a pool party. And, and actually after looking at your work, I then looked up the video and right. I, I, it just, I, it's just, it's horrific. It's yeah. horrific. But the fact that you are addressing those images and putting them in a museum and saying, look this up because this needs to be addressed. Right. I think it's just so important. Right, it is. And I actually did a piece on that where I had a little girl with gold panties because it's some, yeah. it's some type of profit and currency and that oppression. It's something that, you know, Toni Morrison said that it's a mental illness. Racism was a mental illness. And she did a beautiful video with Charlie Rose where Toni Morrison talks about this. She says, you know, what is in you? And she's asking you to examine yourself that want to make you be a more evolved person that you have to put your foot on someone else's back. And, you know, she asked these questions and Charlie Rose said, you know, you write about this and this. she said, I have to. And this is the same thing I feel like when I'm doing these works with these kids and talking about issues like that. I don't really want to show a child like he's being sucked up or shot in my work but if it's happening we have to do yeah something. i mean we are in such desperate times that we should really see people as human beings and good citizens that wish to have these same problems and it's just that i might have to address in my work yeah what impact do you want your images to have on society god i want them to just to say art is artifact and so you know if we're still around and we're not vanished decay people that people can look back on my work a hundred years and say this is an artifact of what was happening we have moved so far beyond this it's almost primitive and understand people can just go and do some type of teleporting whatever they can do and and, (laughs) you know and see that this was very real and very painful for a group of people that maybe it shouldn't have to be and this is what happened and so that's what I hope that people are seeing in my work, that this is an artifact of our time. Yeah, absolutely. And and you also work with text. You just you don't just work with collage. I mean, tell us about your text oh work God. and how this came about. I love text. <laughs> I love text. I love text in a way that it is a way to talk about the images and things I've talked to you about earlier without using a visual form of image. So I just love how this idea when we're talking about beauty and identity and how that is with images, we have to have that. But text allows me to talk about it in a way that I I'll say over, under, back, through, part, grease, wash, rewash. I could be talking about hair in a way that people don't recognize right away because you don't have an image. Text helps you to talk about classism and beauty and blackness in a way that I'm using it that is not done through the the visual form of a face. And I love it. It's harder for me to do. I got four works coming out right now and I'm so happy. You know, that's what Corona helped me do some text and make me be scared and think. And I can't wait to, to introduce these new text works in a way that we're talking about being equal and greater than yeah. and less than in ways that we talk about we and they and how that looks. So, yeah. And tech, the great thing about <laughs> text, it has its own audience. It doesn't compete with the collages. It's two separate bodies of work yeah. that I think are very important. 
You know, I, early on, I had someone say, I don't go to museums to read art. I go to see <laughs> art. And I was like, okay, okay, that's pretty ignorant. <laughs> so You do your thing. Yeah, do your thing. You don't want to read. I mean, who said they don't want to read? I mean, what person walks around and say, I don't want to read? That's like somebody said, I don't want to learn. You need some medicine prescribed to you by a doctor. You know, so... Uh, <laughs> So I love the text. The text is my baby. So you've got this incredible exhibition that is set to be now in September. It had to be postponed yeah. at the Contemporary Austin, yeah. which is going to be a major museum. I mean, you had recently an incredible exhibition at Spelman College, at the Museum of Fine Art in 2018, and then obviously coming up at the Contemporary Austin. I mean, how does it feel to have this so much well-deserved, obviously, but how does it feel to have this sudden museum recognition? <laughs> I know, it was great. I mean, because Austin is... <laughs> I mean, seriously, Austin is my hometown. I've been here Yeah, yeah. my whole life. And I've been, I mean, I've been to these museums and I haven't had any invitations. I had to go to New York. I mean, this is like, and mm, your face. I'm like Rihanna right now, you know. I don't walk in there. Bitch, look at my art. But I think. You have to invite Rihanna to the show. I know, right? It's like, it's an opportunity for me and all the, um, because there is a notion in Austin that if you consider local, somehow you're lesser than, than the national artist. And I used to always find say, I'm Austin based. I'm Austin based. And I remember yeah. doing a show at the Carver Museum here in Austin. And I put on the show I mean, straight out of grad school. And people would come and say, Have this always been shows like this? I'm like, No, this is my idea of what contemporary art looks like and how Black artists are talking about it. And I remember in the talk, we had a, a, a panel discussion. And I simply said, I concede Austin. I want the world. I mean, I said it, I, and I believed it, and not a year later, I had that show at Volta, and my work sold out, and it just been boom ever since. And now I have the opportunity to show people that I've always existed here, that I've always created yeah. work that I've been earnest about and proud of, yep. and now they're going to have to see it shine. I'm so happy. I want all the people who've kind of worked, you know, and my mom's 89. And so I hope that she can come and see the show. And, and it's just so important for me to do an amazing job. And at first I was like, I'm going to do all this work. Yeah. And I realized that was me just the whole idea of them not seeing me. And, you know, and even the whole state of Texas, you know, I just never got art page. I never had shows in Houston. I mean, big museum shows or anything. This is my opportunity yeah. To, to just really shine and just, and it's important for me, just as a person. Yeah. You know, I'm excited. You got to fly across the pond. Yeah. As soon as coronavirus is over, I'm coming. Yeah, I'm coming. I know, right? Well, thank you so much, Deborah. This has been absolutely just incredible. I cannot wait to meet you in real life. But as this is the Great Woman <laughs> Artist podcast, we always ask our guests if there was a female artist you'd most like to meet living or dead who would it be and what would you say to them i would like to oh god it's two people you know uh yeah, yeah two two okay. fine, two's fine. well i want to meet a matiste because i want to know how he felt and how he got through the idea of painting all these works and becoming very sick and having been bedridden and still started cutting out collages start doing something different change his whole idea of work that's confinement and rising up where he had more beautiful work than he had before. 
So I would love to be like, yeah, baby, how was that? You know, like, you know, now you're there. <laughs> Got these scissors, you cutting, cutting, cutting. And then the other person would be Eva Hess. I want to talk yes. to Eva Hess about, you know, her whole idea of she was insecure about things she shouldn't have been insecure about, how she got through that, how she navigated creating the work that she did as sculpture that told the story of a woman's body without really putting the woman, the woman wasn't present, but you knew it was about the woman's body. That's so very important. And that would help me with my text work is just being present and not there too. It's just amazing. So those are the two people, there's a lot of people, but those are the two people mainly, so. Amazing. Thank you so much, Deborah. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 27th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Deborah Roberts. It was such an incredible and inspiring insight to hear her speak about her life, career and work, which is really addressing such present and important issues in the world that we live in today. This episode was sound edited by the great Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying these podcasts so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps people find us and of course thank you so much for listening to the great woman artist podcast with me katie hessel